So Father, our prayer today is that we would indeed hear your voice and not harden our hearts. Give us grace and fill us with your Spirit that we might be those who rejoice in the Lord Jesus and surrender the whole of our lives to his rule. We ask it for his sake. Amen. Amen. Some years ago, the managing director of McDonald's said this, I worship God, the family, and McDonald's. But on Monday morning in the office, that order is reversed. And the reality is that he speaks for many Americans as a nominal Christian. The reality is that this is a generation who worships work, works at play, and plays at worship. What are we passionate about, if we're honest? Well, I'm passionate about my family, passionate about my marriage and my kids. I'm passionate about my career, passionate about my vacation and my car. But if we're honest, how passionate are we about God and the Lord Jesus Christ? The average American spends 38 hours a week on their phone. But how long do we spend in Scripture? Only 11% of Americans who go to church read the Bible each day. The terrible reality is that God has been displaced. In the 1800s, were we living in Victorian England or America, there would have been only one book that we would have had at home pretty much, a Bible. And if you go to a yard sale or if you go to an old bookshop, you'll, you'll see these old Bibles darkened and soft through being worn and read day after day. But what about ours? How much of the hard disk does God really occupy? Where is he in my thinking and time and priorities, ambitions, and life plans? What am I most passionate about, most focused on or absorbed in? This morning, though, it's not as if we're going to be beaten up by the psalmist, because to the extent that he's not our focus, it is because of a crisis in our doctrine of God. If he isn't the focus, it is because we've forgotten who he really is and what he has really done for us. We've lost sight of his love and his grace, of his imminence and care as the shepherd of his people. So this morning, it's not a finger-pointing exercise of be more focused on God's and read your Bible more often and worship him with more wholeheartedness. Rather, what the psalm is going to do for us is to walk us through who God is, his majesty and rule, his care as a shepherd who loves you. And it is as we listen to this, once again gathered here this morning, that our hearts are going to melt within us as once again we say yes this is a God worthy of all my attention and all of my worship as I turn away from myself back into the arms of his tender care and covenant grace. The mood of Psalm 95 is one of awe towards God's, and the call of the psalm is to yield our entire lives to Christ. To warn you, 
These 11 verses are revolutionary. Prepare this morning to allow this God to be the supreme king over your world and life in every emotion, word, relationship, and possession. It's powerful medicine. So much so that Henry VIII calls this psalm a strong stirring to the praise of God. It's one of a group of psalms called royal psalms that run from Psalm 93 to Psalm 99, and each of them proclaim the absolute kingship of God over every part of his world. And it opens with an urgent summons to surrender the whole of your life to the one true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the language is not so much one of invitation, uh, but of summons into the presence, to the palace of God. And our psalm splits into two clear sections. There for us on your sheets if you want to make notes. First, an invitation, really a summons to sing God's praise, verse 1. In the book of Common Prayer, Psalm 95 is called in the Latin, the Venite, a Latin word for O come. And it's not hard to see why that's a great title for this psalm, because three times we are summoned to enter into God's presence. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a shout joyfully to him with psalms. Note. The command is not to assent to God, it's not to acknowledge God, it's not to believe in God, it is to surrender everything to God. There's nothing lukewarm or half-hearted about this. The picture is of a full-throated, energetic, dynamic, joy-filled response of deep gladness, verse 2, come into his presence with thanksgiving. So we are only minutes into our material, and already there's an urgent corrective, isn't there? So many people reject Christianity, and it's not hard to see why. They visit church, and it feels like a death sentence. Faces like a funeral dirgy and depressing music, dark buildings, antiquated language, and very often clergy dressed in black. This psalm turns all of that upside down. The picture here is not of a funeral, but of a festival. This is not a cemetery, but a celebration. This psalm pulsates with joy from start to finish. The picture is of a happy people, thankful to God, overflowing with thanks. And when people sing, it's often at a great victory event, at the baseball match or the American football match, we sing. And here we're singing because it is a victory There's been a mighty redemption, verse 2. He's the rock of our salvation. Gibraltar-like, God is immutable, immovable, and dependable. He's not a, a fickle king like the gods of the ancient world, the Baals. 
God doesn't change policy on the hoof or ever break his manifesto promise. He's the Lord, the covenant God, who always keeps his promises to his people, the place of eternal stability, and he has saved us. Indeed, in Psalm 95, each of these pictures, the rock and the sea and the mountains, are all borrowed from the story of the Exodus, as the people did find a rock and go through a sea and find a mountain, the Mount Sinai. Each of them are borrowed from the Old Testament story because the story, as far as God is concerned, is one of stability and certainty and miraculous provision. As the Exodus people had no water and were dying of thirst, God commanded that Moses should strike the rock and water gushed out, an oasis of provision in the death of the desert. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is able to say that that rock was Christ. Christ, our steady, reliable rock of provision, who miraculously provides the water of salvation in the desert of death. And so we praise Him and thank Him and adore Him, for He has secured the full forgiveness for all of our sin and guilt and shame. The people look back on a mighty rescue from Egypt. God had rescued them from the concentration camps of Pharaoh and led them through the Red Sea and provided for them. Go to the Gobi and the Sahara, and there is no water, yet God miraculously provides a drinking fountain in the desert of death. It's the cross in this desert of sin and judgments. The cross is the place of life and provision. Did you know that in Islam, uh, singing is forbidden? So if you go to the mosque on Friday, there will be no song. It is forbidden. But in Christianity, it's not forbidden, but commanded. And in Old and New Testament, whether it's at the Red Sea as they sing the song of Moses, or this morning here in church, we are, we are commanded to sing with joy in our hearts to God's to one another and to God as we acknowledge who he is in song. And what we sing matters because singing is formational. It is to be singing that bears relationship to the truth of who God is and what he has done. What we're singing of is Christ, who he is, the rock of our salvation, what he has done in the salvation through his death at the cross. But Tony, I'm sorry. I feel so far from God. I feel so cold towards God. I feel so far from his love and mercy, so low, if I'm honest today. What the psalmist does is to apply the medicine. And the medicine is verse 3, which is the character of this great God. Because this God, our God, the Lord, is a great God, and he's unique, a great king above all other gods. The surrounding nations regarded Yahweh as a tin pot's local deity for that nation alone, rather like the governor of New Jersey. He's there, over there, and over there alone. 
And actually, it's tempting for us to think like this in this world of diversity and inclusion. We're tempted to think that over the 2040 window, Allah rules, and then over in India, the Buddhist gods rule. But actually, our God is the king of the universe, sovereign over every power. Verse 4, in his hand is the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. From the lowest place, the depth of the earth to its center is 4,000 miles. Did you know that? And God rules from the top of the crust to the core of the earth. He rules over those 4,000 miles down. He, he rules 4,000 miles down right up to the highest mountain peak, Everest, 29,000 feet above sea level. There is only one king, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator, the owner, the sustainer of our world. At the coronation at Westminster Abbey, as the new queen or king is crowned, do you know what happens next? She, he, is presented with an orb. It's a picture of the globe. And the globe is placed into the hand of the newly crowned sovereign. It's been what they've done in Westminster Abbey since the coronation of Charles II in 1661. It's made of gold, sapphires, rubies, and emeralds, and diamonds, and pearls, and enamel. But as it's placed into the hand of the sovereign, what you notice is above the orb is a cross. And then the new sovereign is charged to remember Christ's dominion over all the earth. Yet the skeptic shakes his head. Nah. What about all the evil in the world? Don't tell me your Christ rules over every part of the world. What about all the suffering in history around the world? What about what's happening in Nigeria and Iran and China? But the psalmist has the answer in verse 5. The sea is his, for he made it. Because the sea in the Bible stands for restless cosmic chaos, uncontrollable evil, the unstoppable surge of wickedness, generation after generation. Yet even over the darkness, our God rules. The doctrine behind this is the absolute supremacy of God, sovereign over everything in his world. At the Red Sea, what did happen? But the seas opened as the Hebrews were miraculously led through. And then as the enemies closed in, the walls of water closed in around them. And did you know that in recent archaeological discoveries, divers have actually found chariots and shields and armor at the bottom of the Red Sea. It really did happen. Nearly three-quarters of the Earth's surface is covered with water. There are 50 different seas. 321 cubic meters and miles of it from the shallowest inlets to the deepest depths. From the Atlantic to the Pacific to the Mediterranean and the Arctic, no, Neptune isn't the god of the sea. Christ is. 
which is why when he entered our world, he walked above the waters and calmed the storms with his word. And over terra firma, verse 5, his hands formed the dry lands. So he rules the depths to the peaks, to the sea, to the lands, whether it's the fertile plains of Oregon, to the sandy desert of the Sahara, to the highlands of Scotland, to the wineries of France, to the valleys of the Grand Canyon, to the rainforests of Borneo, to the ice caps of the South Pole, to the streets of Philadelphia. He rules the land, stick a pin anywhere in the map, and there isn't an inch of ground over which Jesus doesn't say, mine. Back to the Queen just for a minute, because when she became Queen in 1952-3, there were all sorts of countries over her dominion and rule. And now only 15 countries remain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Antigua, Bermuda, the Bahamas, Belize, Grenada, Jamaica, Papua New Guinea, St. Lucia, the Solomon Islands, St. Kitts, and Nevis, St. Vincent, and the Grenades. But one by one, territories have been removed from her rule, and it's very, very sad if you're British. The last was Barbados just this last year. But what about God? Might it be that different territories break off and his kingdom and dominion will one day evaporate like a jigsaw with piece after piece being removed? No. In verse 4 to 5, the picture is of the universality of divine governments, sovereign over every part of the globe, over every providence, the one and only true and living God is enthroned forever. Which is why, in verse 6, three times the summons of verse 1 to 2 is repeated again. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord's, our maker. And the word for worship in the Hebrew means to bow down. And so in verse 6, the Hebrew is really clumsy. It literally translates, oh, let us get down, down, down before God's. Or if you like, let us bow down bowing down, down before God. Let us get down low, very low, low before this God. And the picture is of the vassal subject prostrating himself face down before the sovereign potentates. The picture is of the supplicants face down with his face at his feet. This is not the false humility of a Uriah heap, but the only true response to a believer who gets it before his God. The picture is of subordination, and it's not just a physical posture, but a heart thing. There is only one response to this God's. It is to fall flat on your face as you surrender the whole of your heart, lock, stock, and barrel to him 
and to him alone. It's a decision we make at conversion, but an ongoing decision we have to make every single day of our lives. This is the opposite of nominal Christianity. And J.C. Ryle puts it like this, beware of half-hearted religion. Beware of following Christ for any secondary motive to please relations, friends, to keep in line with custom or your family, to appear respectable and have the reputation of being religious. No, follow him for his own sake. If you follow him at all, be thorough, be real, be honest, be sound, be wholehearted. If you have any religion at all, let your religion be real. And here's why. Because something extraordinary happens in verse 7. And in the song version of Psalm 95, a little P is placed next to it. We open the psalm forte, strong, loud. But by the time we get to verse 7, it's piano forte, sing it soft. Because the truth of verse 7 is extraordinary. It's this that the great God who created the world and owns it all, the great God of transcendent power and authority out there is the God of imminent love and grace who loves you and has come to save you through the saving death of Jesus Christ at Calvary. This great king is a shepherd, and the scene now is of pastoral provision. We are with a flock somewhere on a Palestinian hillside, a picture of pastoral security, a flock perfectly provided for, the marvelous, miraculous news of the gospel that the God of power and creation is a God of tender grace and who has come in mercy and pity. He's close to you because he loves you, and he is with you. Verse 7, he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This verse takes us to the heart of the gospel, and he's our maker here, not in the sense of creation, but our maker in the sense of the flock. He's made the flock the church. He's made our church and included us into Christ, gathered us in and united us to be part of his kingdom as he's given us his righteousness for free and by grace. He loves you and he's for you and he's with you. A God of power, and of grace through the atoning death, the shed blood of Jesus for our sins at the cross. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But what if still we're not motivated by what we've heard? What if the truth that God is this powerful king and this gracious Savior still hasn't melted our hearts. 
Now what does a God of love do? If we won't be motivated by the truth of the power of God and the truth of the love of God's, now what should God say to us? Well, it's this. As we move from the invitation to God's praise to the warning not to reject God's gospel. Because you see, love warns, doesn't it? Every time you see on a cigarette packet the warning from the Surgeon General, don't smoke if you're pregnant or don't drink whiskey if you're pregnant, is that wicked scaremongering or a loving warning from somebody who cares? About 15 years ago, I was on a beach in Sydney in Australia, and the sign said, shark net torn, do not swim. Is that wicked scaremongering from the authorities at Manly Beach, or is that a loving warning from someone who cares? We need to make up our minds. As the parent shouts stop to the toddler running across the road, is that wicked scaremongering, or is that the loving warning of a mother and a father who care? We need to make up our minds. Because now what happens in the psalm in verse 8 is we reach a solemn warning. It's our second point, not to reject God's gospel today. If you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. And Spurgeon comments on this verse like this. The psalm opens, he says, as if it sounds like a ring of church bells that sounds merrily, but now solemnly. At first, it rings out with a lively peal, but now drops to a funeral knell, as if tolling at the funeral of the generation which perished in the wilderness in rebellion against God. We move from the loud and full peal of, oh, come to God in verses 1 to 2, now to the death knell of a generation that refused God's gospel, and the application is going to be, make sure you don't do the same. Verse 8, we find a special duty with a special time, underlined with a special warning. The special duty is to hear God's voice in the gospel of grace. The special warning is not today to harden your hearts. And the special time is today. There is no reference to tomorrow because today is the day of salvation. When I was at university, the rowers were always the most obnoxious of uh, everybody. And they had a party trick which they would always do in the bar on a Friday night to impress the girls. They had uh, hands that were thickened and calloused because of the rowing on the river. And so they'd walk into the bar with a pin or a tack, and then they'd say, watch this, girls. And they'd get the pin, and they'd stick it into their calloused hands. And wow, they felt no pain. But there was a reason for that. Morning after morning, five o'clock on the river, the attrition on the hands meant that the skin became thickened and calloused and deadened. But some people have hearts like this. So the command is to listen to God's words. 
but to make sure that as I listen, my heart is receptive, not deadened or calloused or hardened. But the people of the former generation in the wilderness heard the gospel of covenant grace, but they didn't believe and they didn't respond. Even though they'd seen God's mercy and power, the ten blows against Pharaoh, the parting of the Red Sea, the cloud by day, the fiery pillar by night, the quail, the manna, even though they heard the promise of the land flowing with milk and honey, still they refused to look ahead to the land of promise and dared to say to God, take us back to Egypt. What went wrong for the people in Israel was this. They were living in the gap They had been saved, but they were looking forward to the final salvation of the lands. And in the gap of salvation, I have been saved and I'm awaiting final salvation. This is a life of testing, as God tests us to ensure our faith is genuine. But in the testing of the wilderness, what happened to the people of God was that they doubted God's goodness as they self pitied about the circumstances of their own lives. They said, gods, you don't really care about us. You've brought us out to the wilderness to die. Prove you love us. Show you love us by making our lives good and easy now. Is your life painful and difficult? Is there a cancer diagnosis, a difficult relationship, family problems, financial hardship, or scars from your past? These are the circumstances of life that God in his sovereignty allows to refine us and shape us for glory. The right responses to the circumstances of life that are painful is to trust God that he knows what he's doing in the pain he allows, but there's a wrong and dangerous response. It is to shake our fists at God. It is to resent God. It is to complain against God and to become angry with God at the life he's given me because I deserve better. I was at a train station just recently, and as you got off the train onto the platform, there was this enormous gap, and then came the voice, mind the gap, and there were electric tracks. We need to mind the gap. We have been saved, praise God. We await the return of Jesus at the end of the age, praise God, but this is the gap, and it's dangerous, because in the testing, we are tempted to become angry and bitter against God, to murmur against him at the cost of discipleship, and to say, I don't want to journey anymore in this wilderness. I want to go back to the land of Egypt and to the world and to pleasure and to sin. Massa, Meribah, bad words. In actual fact, There are all kinds of names in history, which if you were to pronounce them, it would have such a bad impression. You would never want to walk up to somebody in Israel and say the word Auschwitz. You would never want to walk up to a Manhattan person in New York and say 9-11. 
to walk up to somebody from the Old Testament and say Massa and Meribah, bad words, bad names, and bad history. In Exodus 17, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They provoked God. They doubted his goodness. They ignored his mercy. They rejected his promise. They forgot his grace and mercy. The names Massa and Meribah, bitter, bitterness and rebellion. That's what those words mean. And in the book of Hebrews, this is underlined as a warning for us. And in verse 7b, it's odd because it's as if God now intervenes for himself and speaks for himself. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. Literally, I was disgusted with that generation. The picture is of grief and of disgust. It's very strong vocabulary. God was nauseated with them appalled by them. And verse 11, he swore on oath in his wrath that they should never enter his rest. The account is taken from Deuteronomy 1, 35. It's very unusual for God to swear an oath in anger. And the anger oath here is that this generation of unbelievers should not enter the land, and so they wander until all of them die, their corpses strewn in the deserts, and the successor generation enter into the land. We live in the gap, so mind the gap. There is something very abrupt, isn't there, and unusual about the conclusion of the psalm. It ends on a sobering note. For 40 years, I loathed the generation. I said, this is a people who go astray in my heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. An invitation to sing God's praise, but with it, a warning not to reject God's gospel. We are to get down low, low, very low before God. How do you do that? And the answer is by hearing and believing and obeying his words. We can be confident that we will not follow the same mistake as the people of Israel. For we look back to the death of Jesus at the cross, his mighty resurrection, and the giving of his Holy Spirit to live within us, to empower us and move us and motivate us to live for Jesus Christ. But however hard your life is, trust God. However painful the future might be, look to God, trust God, Keep your eyes fixed on the future land of promise, the new heavens and the new earth, and rejoice with joy that he has given us his words, that this is a king of extraordinary power and amazing covenant grace. Come back to Christ today. And if you are amongst us saying, I feel so low, so far from God's, the medicine is Psalm 95. Why not this coming week take those 11 verses and read one verse a day and allow it to dissolve in your heart like the sugar in the coffee 
take this word to hearts and pray to God that he would soften our hearts, that we might be those who worship with joy and who hear his word with obedience. Let's pray. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Perhaps a moment of quiet as we acknowledge ways in which we have ignored his word, as we ask God to search us to see if there is any unremaining sin in our lives, taking us away from God's, let's ask him that he would bring us back to the cross and to the grace and mercy of his love. Almighty God, to whom all thoughts are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily glorify your holy name. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.